From PQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. My name is Kate Walbert. I'm the author of four books, Where She Went, a collection of short stories, The Gardens of Kyoto, Our Kind, and A Short History of Women. I'm going to read from A Short History of Women. The novel traces five generations of women from the late 19th century through the early 21st. The women are all descendants of a suffragist, Dorothy Townsend, who died on a hunger strike. I'm going to read the first chapter, which takes place in England, 1914, and is told from the point of view of Evelyn, the suffragist's daughter. She is the only character in the book who speaks in the first person, and hers is the voice that really started the entire novel for me. The chapter title is Wardsbury, Gray's Head on Heath, England, 1914-1918. to Mom starved herself for suffrage, grandmother claiming it was just like Mom to take a cause too far. Mom said she had no choice. Besides, she said, starving made the world brighter, took away the dull edges, the disappointment. She said this in hospital, the place not entirely unpleasant, a private room, windows ammonia-washed, looking out to a tree branch on windless days, an ivy-covered wall. For instance, those, she said, Someone had sent greenhouse lilies, suffrage white, to their favorite cause celeb, lilies now stuffed in a hospital pot intended for urine or bile. She said she had never known them to have that smell. She'd been blessed by this, she said, the smell of lilies. She said this when she was still speaking or when she still could be heard, before she twisted into a shape reserved for cracked sticks and hard as that, before they gave her the drip intended for the dying soldiers, and here, said the attendant, wasted on a woman by her own hand. Then I was afraid I might break Mom if I breathed or spoke a word. Before I had tried and tried. Then I gave up like Mum did and went quiet. Grandmother said to her, You're too smart. She sat in the chair knitting, like Madame Lafarge waiting for heads to drop. She talked and she talked. She didn't know whom to blame, she said. She had the attendant bring in the blue-veined china soup tureen she'd carried to hospital from her wedding collection, unwrapped from its velvet sack, and a spoon from the silverware she would later promise me, six place settings of a certain filigree. You're too smart to be so stupid, she said to Mum, as the attendant looked on, ladling broth on the ancient blue chinaman in the matching bowl. Nobody is paying a damn bit of attention. But Mum simply turned away. William wore his barrister's wig to the viewing, the papers reporting he had temporarily lost his mind. I never believed any of it. Besides, this was already December. Everyone had temporarily lost his mind, the war not yet won and miserably proceeding, the trenches entrenched. Wily, Mum had called William, a sparkling prig, she said, as if he were in the room and she were still flirting, arguing in the way they did. That she loved him desperately I understood, though she never fully said it. William still married to an important person's daughter, mum a widow or worse, an educated woman, and left long ago by my father, lost her dead in Salon. What she said was, William's an old, old friend, or sometimes we misbehave. Before she died, he would come around, or he would not, but at the viewing he stayed a long, long time, wigged and ready. Beside him, mum lay like a dead offering in her simple box, a lavender votes-for-women sash across her small, unquivering bosom, her buttoned-up kid gloves buttoned up to her stiff elbows, her hair a la pompadour. 
To my godmother Alexandra's suggestion that I play the piano, I flat out said no. I was newly thirteen and could do as I pleased. Besides, Thomas would play. Thomas would always play. And so beautifully, who could know whether the mourners were weeping at the sight of Mum dead or the talents of her crippled son? The promise of him drove me mad, the way Mum had always listened, the way Nurse and Penny applauded from the kitchen. Even the bird in its cage, a canary kept to sound the alarm, sat all still and silent when my brother Thomas played. So it was around the beautiful Thomas that the mourners gathered, touching him, the top of his head, patting his arm, his shoulder, as if he were holy water. He paid little attention, slouched over the keys, performing one of her favorites, his elbows akimbo slicing the air. Soon, he knows, he will be shipped across the ocean to America. Grandmother said she could afford to keep one of us, but two would be a handful. A new family has been found for him, old friends in San Francisco. Good riddance, I thought, listening with the others, grandmother and Alexandra, and the few neighbors and ladies Mum called compatriots, and William before he bowed and closed the parlor door on his way out. The ladies rustled back to their dance chairs, folding their hands over the printed verse Grandmother said Mum would have preferred. Then everyone sat and closed their eyes, as if to dream of elsewhere. I ducked into the kitchen to keep Nurse and Penny company. And what of them? Nurse will marry the milkman, Michael, and settle with him in Wales to live a perfectly miserable life. Children and children chores. Michael will drink in the way men do, and one thing will lead to the other. Penny will pack her cardboard box and take a train east. She'll disappear like our father did, long before we can even remember him. He fancied himself Lord Byron, Mum said, though he was only a sir, and that sir a result of money changing hands. Why she had married him at all, she could not say. He vanished in Ceylon, or perhaps the natives devoured him. For my sixth birthday, I received a box containing some of his possessions, cufflinks and a blanket woven from hemp, a dictionary of lost words called the Dictionary of Lost Words that I predictably misplaced, everything and everyone dropping through my hands, even grandmother eventually, a few years after Mum died. She said she thought it best I leave Wardsbury and move to Madame Lane's an educational establishment out of harm's way. She said she had enjoyed my company, but in light of the endless war and the bloated zeppelins overhead, I should be farther north. There I would learn what I should in the relative peace of distance, peace such as it is, she said. There, she promised, I would find other girls my age and teachers of a kinder disposition. And she had last heard that the facilities were quite respectable, a home that once served as an inn to travelers near enough to York, in a place called Gray's Head on Heath. She said all this at the dining table, she and I at opposite ends, where we would meet for meals before returning to our rooms. It had become our custom to live together alone, me and my books and grandmother engaged with cards or needlepoint, or the conversation she called her lifeblood, her friends, the elderly women who lived within visiting distance and arrived in a regular stream to place their small white cards in the silver bowl reserved for guests. Out the windows, I watched a streak of sunset fading. Besides, she said, you need softening. You're as hard as rock, she said, and for a young woman your age, this is not attractive. And although she did not say it, what she thought was, look what happened to your mother. I no longer have the strength to be in loco parentis, she said, slicing the meat off the chicken bone, scraping one of her silver knives across the china. She planned, she said, chewing, to debunk for nuque, her rheumatism acute. 
I'd like a regular week, a Monday or Tuesday on my own, Grandmother said. At Madame Lane's, we are expected to work. We learn elocution in mathematics. We sew curtains and chisel paint from the stuck, blackened windows. We sweep the corners of webs and the dust that settles from the quarry. We are too young to do much more, but still we wrap bandages, we gather rags. We are girls who have come to stay for the duration, Bridget and Josephine, whose parents are divorced and whose father will, before the end of the year, blow his brains through the roof, and Abigail, who arrived in April with seeds to plant, tiny specks in an envelope she carried to the girls' garden and sat to watch grow, and Rebecca, a Jewess, someone said, though we had never met one, and Philomena, who refuses to speak and rarely bathes, and Harriet, God Harriet. We are few more than this, a dozen or so enrolled from the far corners, here to join the effort out of harm's way, harm meaning the Kaiser himself. There are posters of his soldiers looming over girls like us, fallen and helpless beneath their big black boots. We see the posters at every rail station and in the windows and doors of the shops in Gray's Head. We are whom the men are fighting for, they suggest. It is one long duel. The posters give some the chills and others nightmares, though we are in God's hands, Madame Lane says, and must trust faith. Faith here is a silence near to unbearable. Everyone has gone away. Horses were once harnessed and ridden in the neighboring saffron field, but the horses have been sold, Madame Lane says. The saffron fields plowed under for corn and root bearers. There is little food, and we are often hungry. Still, we keep neat rows, military rows, and listen to the men who instruct us, men on leave or those who have never been, everyone nervous. They speak too quickly and startle from a raised hand. The women who look after us aren't nervous, just mad. They've worked their fingers to the bone, they will tell us, a thousand and one jobs. Have we seen the pictures? Men's work. One even read the manual and repaired the tractor crankshaft. Fancy that, they say. Fancy that, and now here, and now this. What, we say. This, this, they say, gesturing out to the cold blue hills beyond, or the pile of rubble, a former castle on the crest, or the rotten silver oak they have hacked to a stump, the weather already turned and Madame Lane's in need of heat. There is never enough heat, and the women who look after us rise earliest in the morning to scour the dead limbs of the silver oak for kindling, the heels of their palms riddled with splinters, hard blisters. They were once dainty, though it's hard to imagine. Father Fairfield comes from a distant parish near Birmingham, and though he's still a father, he no longer believes. Once, he tells us, he led quite a flock. He arranges our desks in a circle so we might look at one another rather than pepper his back with glares. I stand at the ready, he says. What do you need to know? He wears a black robe of sorts tied with twine, and his hands are the hands of a laborer, though his face is different than his hands suggest, delicate and soft. Father Fairfield is God, I write across the book reserved for notes, blue-lined and empty and entirely full of promise. We've been issued five, one for each subject, and a pencil that can be repeatedly sharpened. I shove my pullover to my elbow and write the words again, this time in script. Father Fairfield, I write, is God. They will draft him by March. Archbishop of Canterbury be damned for sanctifying conscription of the clergy. I'm no Bertrand Russell, Father Fairfield will say, and go, killed within his second week. But for now he stands before us, beautiful and ruined and not yet dead. We wear leather lace-up boots for sustenance, 
and seamed five-pence stockings, and our hair should be brushed fifty times, and from our eyes as well, even the curly kind. Madame Lane doles out rules as if we are still children, but we are no longer children. We are fifteen, sixteen, seventeen. Our blue pullovers are required even in summer, but now in January we are freezing, the winter draft whistling through the walls, swirling around us as churned waves would if we were mermaids. We are trapped under sea. In the mornings the ice is so thick on the windows we must crack it with the silver letter opener Josephine has brought from home, the tarnished one with the sharp point. The ice cracks as the world once did, Josephine says, to form the continents. Look, she says, holding up a shard. Australia. We don't know about that. We are simply mermaids, sirens ringing the locals in, the boys too young yet to go, kicking past on their way to Top Hill, snaky boys, Bridget's word, from the quarry families, boys with shorn hair and looks on their faces and black pants pinched at the knees. If they could, they would have dangled cigarettes, the rolled kind, from their lips, too dry for our likes. We'll take the wet kind, the ones frequently licked, the full ones of Father Fairfield's. He'd seen so much. Tell us, Father Fairfield, fill us in. We are bleeding over the moon. He sits at the window sill, smoking. He says his preference has always been silence. He tells us how there are many Quakers in Birmingham. He tells us how they conduct their Quaker meetings in their meeting houses, simple constructions of wood-painted white and benches that line each wall where the congregants sit and wait and think until compelled to stand and speak. He believes this is a good idea, he tells us, something we might try. He smokes for a while and watches us from his place on the windowsill, the smell of the smoke intoxicatingly warm. I sit on my fingers, I scratch an itch, no one, it appears, has anything to say, nothing rising to the surface out of the rumble of our own minds, although Father Fairfield doesn't seem to notice. He doesn't seem to remember we are here at all. He pinches the end of his cigarette and sets it beside him on the sill, and he stares out the long windows at the cold blue hills, or maybe at the remains of the castle on the crest. And it is not until we hear Miss Peach ring the bell for domestic duties that we are brave enough to stand to remind him we are here. Miss Townsend, Father Fairfield says, as we file out of our classroom, a former library of sorts, though our bookshelves have been emptied, donated to the Red Cross down the road, and the ladder that reached the higher shelves, donated, as Madame Lane likes to say, to the stove. Bridget has offered to wash the blackboard, and Harriet has presented him with the scarf she was knitting, loopy and intended for a soldier, though here twisted in Harriet's hands, as she says, Welcome, Father, and curtsies. Father Fairfield ducks and hangs the scarf around his neck, the standard green yarn of it greased from Harriet's dirty hands. She knitted everywhere, Harriet, at meals, at vespers, even after lights out, when the rest of us lay like so many corpses in a trench, waiting for sleep, the blankets brought from home piled high, and never enough, our toes freezing. Thank you, Father Fairfield says, turning away from her to me. A word, he says. Yes, sir, I say the other girls looking wide, then moving on, leaving and sorry to go. Dreamy Father Fairfield with two white skin and black hair and lips that curve just so and wet. He looks like the pictures of actors Penny showed Thomas and me in the kitchen some afternoons, when the rain kept us in and we were waiting for Mum to come home or nurse in the parlor, loitering with Michael. Penny had been the kind one, crying for hours when Mum passed on before packing her cardboard suitcase. 
We were on Mum's order to be good to her and never cross and never rude and never to raise our voices. She was simple-minded, Mum said, and though there were times I wanted to say to her, bugger off, I did not, I never did. Alexandra said that I had inherited Mum's will, not to mention her temper, and that this could either float me in good stead or kill me. I think I'll float. Why Mum chose to go down, I'll understand when I'm much older, everyone agrees. I'm dying for you, is what she said, but Alexandra said no, she would never have said such a thing, and besides, she was delirious and spoke stuff and nonsense. Her mind overwhelmed her, Alexandra said. It takes me a moment to hear Father Fairfield talking. I am always drifting, my own mind loud. I admired her, he's saying. I just wanted you to know. I admired your mother. I stand stock still in my uniform, though when he offers me a chair, I sit. Smoke, he says, and I say yes. He walks to the window, left open a crack though the wind blows, and picks up the cigarette pinched on its sill, lighting it with a match from the pocket of his robe. He draws the smoke in, unwrapping the scarf from around his neck, breathing out. Don't want to catch fire, he says, passing the fag to me. I hold it in the way I'd seen Mom occasionally and nurse in the kitchen with Michael. I let it burn between my cold fingers and then take a puff, suddenly giddy from the cigarette and from Father Fairfield talking. He's saying he had read all about her in the papers. Between the lines, he says, where the news is. A real hero she was. She would not compromise, he says. She did something, he says, though it must have been a sorry lot to live through. And wasn't it cruel, the way the press eviscerated her? The word itself, like taking Mum from his other pocket and slicing her down the middle. You can learn a lot that way, he says, reading the papers. Do I read the papers? Just this morning he's learned how our new allies, the Americans, have tortured four Hooterites, he says. Do I know of them? No, sir, I say. Farmers, mostly, descended from mountain men, Bohemians. Oh. They wanted to farm in America, someplace west. Yes, sir. The Americans killed two of them, beat them to a pulp for refusing to fight in the war, he says. The other two, God knows. This I do believe, given the way the wind is blowing, he says. The dead ones were chained to a wall and so badly beaten, according to the papers, that the wife, the sister-in-law, had to come in to identify them, brother, husband. These Americans are new allies, he says, our brothers in arms. Father Fairfield stops then and waits. I cannot imagine what he expects me to add. I've learned that adding, embellishing, decorating with words is part of my finishing, or at least this is what Miss Peach of Domestic Duties expects of us. We are to elevate the conversation, to egg it on. Think of the sweet flourish of a frosted buttercream rose on a many-layered cake, she says, and our mouths water hearing it, since it had been some time since we ate cake. The ash sifts down, burning. I should put the cigarette somewhere, what remains of it, but where? Father Fairfield occupies the desk and shadows the ashtray, and I would have to stand, straightening my legs. It all seems too complicated and awkward and lacking in female grace, a word we discuss in the evenings after Vespers, when Miss Cordine and Miss Long speak to us on the many graces. And who looks after you, he says. I cough, passing the fag, nothing but ash and paper, back to him. My godmother, Alexandra, I say. Father Fairfield smiles, then leans over to wrap Harriet's scarf around my own neck. You're shaking, he says. Yes, sir. 
I just wanted you to know that I admired her, he says. Yes, sir, I say. His eyes are a bit green instead of all brown. They are algae green, and perhaps that's what comes to mind because they are tearing, not tearing as if he will cry right then and there, but tearing as if he is suddenly caught in a wind tunnel or has found himself reading too long, the way tears come on from too much concentration or thinking. How old are you, he says. Pardon? How old are you? Sixteen, I say, almost. That's right, he says, as if this were an examination. And when she died, he says. Thirteen, I say. Too quiet, but he hears. I am a fighter, grandmother says. I am just like her, and stubborn as a goat, and willful and determined, and entirely lacking, she says, in female wiles, so that I will not cry. I should not cry. Besides, I could tell Father Fairfield, I would rather hear something else. I would rather hear about the woman who had to identify her brother and her husband, beaten to a pulp for refusing to fight. I would rather hear whether the woman found the two dead ones who had wanted to farm west, sitting in chairs, their hands tied behind their backs, their faces sprouting like purple cauliflowers and blood from their noses, or if the woman found them as if they were asleep, the sheets pulled over their bodies so that she had to turn the sheets down to see, so that she might have, for just a moment, imagined she would find no one there she knew, though of course she could tell from the outlines, from the shift in the air. She knew from the wind and the sudden sun, just as I did. I knew from the way my eyes teared so that no one ever had to tell me. No one needed to say the word dead, because I could tell Father Fairfield now, and I could have told him then. I already knew. And knowing, I took the birdcage outdoors and opened the little latch that so many times I had been tempted to open before, the little latch that fit through the tiny loop, the coil of brass there. I let the door swing open, the canary with its seed eyes and thorn beaks stunned by fresh air, though mostly, I will think about this later, by the absence of that horrible room, its four walls papered and browned at the seams, as if all the tea and all the teacups from all the sitting and waiting had stained its joints. Nowhere is the oiled piano with its spinet legs and raised ridge spine waiting for the swing of the metronome and Thomas's long fingers, and the green velvet draperies thick as blankets for the draft and the chairs, too, and little writing table with its smaller stool and inkwell and pens and blotters to answer the letters propped between the bookend Bibles Mum had said were put to best use there. Who can blame the canary? What does the canary know of sky and trees and air? The little door swings open on its tiny brass hinges, but the bird does not move, nor sing, nor ungrip its maddeningly rigid claws from its swing, its hanging perch, nor blink its seed eyes, nor do anything as I shake the cage. I shake the cage hard. The door is open, the tiny door no longer latched with the tiny brass spike through the tiny brass loop. It could have done it itself, idiot. No trick to this. It could have used its thorn beak to lift the latch. But it is an idiot bird, an idiot canary, a bird brain, an imbecile, and I must turn the cage upside down and shake the cage again and again to watch it swing upside down until with a jerk it wings for balance, but too late, bird brain. I pull it out, yank it out, and it bites the skin of my thumb, the tight skin there, and that hurts so much I fling it off toward the tree so that it falls a bit into it, then up, flying, and then it's gone. And when the bird flies away, I am not as happy as I imagined I would be. I would do anything to bring it back. 
I could tell Father Fairfield about the canary, about letting the canary go, but I do not. Instead, I wait for Father Fairfield to explain something more, to perhaps explain the point of it. But Father Fairfield never explains the point of it. He simply flicks the nub of ash toward the empty bookshelves, his feet beneath his robe, planted in lace-up leather boots not so different, I might have shown him, from my own. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.